Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So let me ask you a provocative question. Who wants your team to lie to them? Okay, so let's all admit occasionally we might like them to lie just a tiny little bit, but not seriously. We don't want them to lie. But how do you know if they're telling you the truth or not? And what do you do to create an environment where the truth is spoken, where their psychological safety is the popular word we would use for that? And by the way, why should your team trust you anyway? Um, we're going to focus on exactly what you need to be doing as a leader of any team to foster the truth telling. Now, my guest today is uniquely positioned to talk about this topic. Ron Carucci is co-founder and managing partner of Navalent, and he's been working with CEOs and executives on transformational change for quite a long time, a 30-year, over 30-year history of helping executives tackle the challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. And he works from startups to fortune, top 10, nonprofits, heads of states, turnarounds, new markets, new strategies, overhauling the leadership and the culture and redesigning for growth. And he's worked for more than 25 in more than 25 countries and on four continents. So, you know, clearly lots of experience. The author of nine books, including a number one bestseller called Rising to Power, which we have featured on this show in a few years ago, and the recently released, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. Ooh, can't speak today. He's a popular contributor to Harvard Business Review, to Forbes, two times TEDx speaker, and he's featured on all the places you would expect to see him, like Fortune CEO Magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, Business Week. Inc., Fast Company, Smart Business, blah, you get the story, sought after by many people for his expertise and for good reason. A couple tidbits that are interesting about Ron, just for fun. On the weekends, you'll find him biking on the tennis court, on his skis, at the movies, or cheering for the Seattle Seahawks. We might want to change his perspective on sports teams, but okay, I get it from there. And he has a very unusual collection of antique doorknobs, door knockers, and skeleton keys to remind him every day about finding and pursuing and opening the doors that are in front of you and opening doors for other people. Ron, welcome to the show. Hi, Wanda. How are you? What a great treat to be back with you again. I'm so excited to talk to you. Me too. Me too. And if you haven't listened to that prior podcast, I really highly recommend it. Some great conversations we had about power. But today, I want to talk about truth. Um, so I always start at the top. Why? Why does this topic about truth matter to you? What's the problem you are trying to solve? Well, I don't think we have to look too far around us, do we, Wanda, to see that we're in a trust recession, that the what, that, that leadership is, uh, and integrity feel like they're in a free fall. Every, every headline you look at is talking about some leadership failure. And most of us have grown soul-weary at stories like Wells Fargo and Theranos and Volkswagen. And I, I was tired of them too. And I'm more, even more tired of the stories. I was tired of the explanations and the lame sort of, well, it was the culture or it was a few bad apples. Um, and I thought we, we, we have to do better. You know, we, we, our, our pandemic didn't, I don't think, cause this 
global crisis of meaning. I think it just revealed it. <laughs> and so you have people in the workplace languishing with a sense of meaninglessness, languishing with a sense of who can I trust, languishing with a, a, a societal question of where do I fit in and who, what, what sorts of information can I rely on? And I wanted to know, is this, all, is this as good as it gets? Or can we do better? And if we could do better, how? I wanted to know under what conditions otherwise good-hearted people would choose to serve their own interests and be selfish and do terrible things. And under, under what conditions would they tell the truth and behave fairly and serve a greater good? And if we could prove which conditions set off which behavior, could we proliferate the better ones and prevent the bad ones? And that's what we learned. Yeah. All right. I want to hear more about this one. I think I'm going to make two provocative statements. One is there are a few words in business language that we use all the time, like trust is one of them, communication is another, collaboration is a third, with so little understanding of what it takes to build and sustain trust. And this is one we know is critical, but man, do we not get it very well in terms of what we need to do. So I think that's really important. But I also know, I mean, you know, we all know, looking at organizations, that there is no major crisis that hits the newspapers that somebody inside that organization didn't already know about and often said something about, but it doesn't somehow we're missing that get it through and take action or believe it. So good cause. Um, in preparing doing this book, you do what you always do, which is a lot of interviews, talking with people, figuring out what the best do, what it looks like. So tell us a little bit about who you talked to and what the research was like. Well, I, I wanted to write a book of heroes. I wanted to write a book of people we would all be proud to work for, to call our bosses, or we would simply want to emulate as leaders or even human beings. The first part of the research was a 15-year longitudinal study with more than 3,200 leaders of interviews we conducted to understand to see if we could uh, statistically model predictive behaviors around when we would know people, what, what conditions bring out people's honesty or not. After that, I then set out on a, on a wonderful uh, adventure to talk to folks who have modeled and lived these behaviors. Um, and I went far and wide. I didn't just talk to people in the business world. Certainly, I talked to amazing CEOs like Aubert Julie, uh, Kathleen Hogan from Microsoft, Ed Townley from Cabot Creamery. But I went beyond. I wanted to go beyond the business world. I feel like leaders have to always look beyond their context to get really nuanced lessons that, with uh, in situations they wouldn't normally get to be in. So I, I talked to the folks at the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra about Marin Alsop's work to do um, uh, use use music to help reach out to impoverished and disadvantaged kids. I talked to members of rival gangs in, in LA who come together and formed a business. I talked to folks in, uh, in Africa using restorative justice to help bring about, you know, uh, to understand what we could learn about accountability uh, in restoration. So I reached far and I wanted bigger stories to help leaders really zoom out and um, go outside their context so that when I brought them back into their context, they had a fresh perspective. Cool. That sounds like fun research. If nothing else, it was so fun. I mean, it, it, I, I can't describe under what a thrill it was to write this book. I felt like I was a kid in a candy store for like nine, for like, you know, three or four months. I just got to weekly talk to these amazing people. And the good news is I thought, um, I'll bet readers would want to get to meet these people too. So we videoed all the interview, many of the interviews oh, wow. and we created a, created a TV series called moments of truth. And those episodes are now all available to folks. If they want to go to either on Roku 
um, or on the website, tobehonest.net, folks can actually go binge watch all 15 episodes of Moments of Truth and get a first-hand look at the, the heroes that I got to meet. And here's some of the things they did make it in the book. Fun. I'm going to go look for that. Moments of Truth. Sounds like a great TV series. It, Ron, it's interesting when you talk about the people that you interviewed and in the title of the book, and when I listen to your language, you merge three things together. Truth, justice, so reparations, and purpose. Why those three together? So one of the things we learned, Wanda, in the research, both of the social sciences as well as the neurosciences of our, in our brain, is that, one, to register honesty, not lying is no longer enough. People, the bar's gotten much higher. Um, our, our brains closely metabolize and process the experience of fairness and the experience of meaning the same way they do truth. And so today, to get labeled as honest, you have to say the right thing, truth, do the right thing, justice, and say and do the right thing for the right reason, purpose. Um, to do any less won't get you labeled as honest. You might get labeled as a reliable person or kind or something, but it takes all three for someone to conclude that you are, in fact, trustworthy. That is interesting. I know from your former work and your former book on rising to power that you talk about it's not the abuse of power, it's the um, lack to, of using power. And one of the things that always struck me about that work is talking about you have power as a leader. What are you using the power for? And one of those is the power to inform and the power to right wrongs. So we're back to that sense of, are you doing the things that are going to be the right things for the organization? Absolutely. We carry that work forward in this book to understand how organizational injustices are everywhere. Our organizations are, are built on biases because they were built by people with biases. Um, that's not in and of itself a bad thing, but if you are a leader who cares that everybody feels a sense of belonging, a sense that they can succeed as anybody else does, you have to root those injustices out. Um, they exist in our processes, in our HR um, mechanisms. They exist in our budgetary and resource allocation processes. Um, here's a simple question to ask yourself. Where in your organization are there privileges that others don't enjoy? So if you're a tech, if you're a technology company, are your engineers privileged? And how do those privileges disadvantage other people? If you're in a high growth company, are your salespeople privileged? Uh, if you're in a, uh, a, a, a premium branded company, are your marketers or brand managers privileged? It's not to say that we have to say all work is created equal. We know it's not. All work is not equal. And there's some work plays more of an important role in the portfolio of your activities than others. But when people feel like they're more important than others and they feel asymmetrically treated and they don't feel like they have the same chance of success as others, now you have a problem. Because once I feel wronged, once I feel um, disadvantaged, I feel entitled to take. And now you've set the stage for misconduct or unethical behavior by simply marginalizing people whose voices you need. The two questions you have to take off the table as a leader that every employee is asking themselves is, do I matter? And do I belong? And the minute they have to wonder about either of those questions, they will devote capacity to answering them and take that capacity away from doing the work you've asked them to do. Well, Ron, there are some things in that one said in ways that I would never have thought about. And I just have to go back to a couple of them because they were pretty powerful. Um, I agree with you. There is organizational injustice everywhere, not by intent, by accident or 
you know, by a series of processes that we just keep building up on time. And there's bias in our judgments and in our opinions. We know that for a fact. So the question is, where are there privileges that some enjoy that others don't enjoy? And how does that disadvantage somebody? And don't justify it, I would add. Like you can, I can talk to any leader who's going to justify why sales gets a special treatment or why engineer gets a special treatment or why they should, you know, blah, blah, blah. You can justify that, but you still have to look at the privileges that one group gets that another group doesn't get. All right. So that one's a really powerful one. Um, And I like your notion that when you feel wronged, you start to feel entitled to take, or it's unnecessary to speak the truth because who cares any rate? You're not paying attention to me. I can see how those never thought about that one. Two questions. Here's the last piece. It's super powerful. Two questions that leaders have to take off the table is, do I matter and do I belong? And if we could get organizations, wow, that would be pretty powerful. Do I matter and do I belong? I refer to that more as a culture of solidarity. Do I have a culture of solidarity where people know that their uniqueness is welcomed, um, that their contribution is critical to our work, and that they can show up to the workplace with all of who they are. They don't have to hide or edit or leave behind any part of themselves in order to feel like they fit in. Yeah. I've described this, um, something I care a lot about, do a lot of work on, this whole notion of creating a more inclusive culture. And I've described that by saying every human being coming to join an organization wants to feel that they fit in some capacity. And so the question is, what do I have to do in order to fit? And I'm going to naturally want to be more like everybody around. The question is, is that five steps too far for what's comfortable for me? Is it just one half step? And I'm okay with that. How much do I have to become like you in order to feel that I fit here is really ultimately. So do I matter and do I belong? I cannot belong for who I really am. All right. Let's go backwards, back to this notion of trust and trustworthiness. And you've said people have to do the right thing, say the right thing for the right reason. Um, tell me a little bit about, because I think we all think trustworthy is something you should grant to me because I'm a good character. And we don't think about how our actions are judged. So say a little more about how you understand trustworthiness. You know, I think all of us believe that we get extra credit for our good intentions. That because I mean to be trustworthy, I mean to be caring, um, that people would just assume that I am. I, I worked with one executive who I uh, collected a bunch of feedback on. I had to tell him that he had lost his team's trust, got very defensive and very frustrated and thought, well, I, I, how could they not trust me? I, I include them in decisions that affect them. I'm, I'm tr- very transparent with what's going on. I don't hide things from them. I've never done anything to breach their trust. Why, why would they not trust me? And so he had a very narrow definition of what earning the trust of others meant. And I said, well, apparently in meetings, um, you do two things that sort of alienate people. One is you can get a little bit sarcastic when something happens that you don't approve. And when, and when someone's not being crisp and articulate with their point of view and they go on a little bit too long, you cut them off, you get impatient and it's very visible. And he said, well, everybody has a bad day. I said, well, apparently you have a lot of them. (laughs) I said, you have, what you have told people is that you're not safe. You, it's not safe for them to be uh, less than articulate. It's not safe for them to be um, offer a point of view that's incomplete. It's not safe for them because being on the on the brunt end of your snarkiness or your cutting them off is not comfortable for them. So if you want to win back their trust, cut that out. He would have never associated those behaviors, which he thought were just part of his personality. 
mm-hmm. as trust eroding behaviors. I think all of us take trust for granted. We all assume that, uh, and, and remember that trust is a currency and we all trade in different economics. Right. I may trade in character. You may trade in competence. Others may trade in personality. Some may trade in similarities. How, how close are, alike are we? Um, not, no one currency of trust is more legitimate than the others. But if you're not trading in the currency someone extends it in, you're going to by default try and earn it in your own currency, which may have no meaning to them. Right. And so you have to lay bare the conditions under which people will exchange and withhold trust uh, in your organization so that you know how to go about earning it and keeping it. We all know the expression, right? It takes years to earn trust and a minute to lose it. And that's true. Um, and then we have to claw our way back to a place of people seeing us not defined by one bad choice or bad moment, but as people of character. And that's just the way trust works. Today, um, we're in a deficit. Where I mean, people, well, if you're a leader, you start distrusted. Used to be that when you were a leader, because you were in charge, people give you the benefit of the doubt. That's the opposite today. Now, you can go from being somebody's peer and beloved to get promoted to be the team's boss, and suddenly you are off limits, Yeah, um, which makes many leaders um, very imbalanced and, and disoriented because they think, I'm still me. And yeah, you are, but you're also not. You now have this mantle of authority and this mantle of power over other people that they don't know if you're going to use responsibly or not. How are you going to use that? And so trust has got to be something that we actually activate every day, that we earn it every day, that we make sure that there's no say-do gap between who we say we are and what we do, um, that the way we treat other people includes justice and dignity. Um, Especially important that's under scrutiny is the way we treat people who are different than us, people in other departments, people in places that we see as rivals. Um, who, who are our theys? You know, who's the, oh, here they come, or what do they want? Because your team is watching you very closely to, treat, to see how you treat those outside your tribe. Right. And if you say to people that there are we's and they's, you told them it's okay that it's okay to reject people, but you also told them that they might one day be one of those days. days. Yeah, I, I I often use a word with people of notion of optics, which I think is what you're getting at here. The intentions are one thing, but what's the optics of what people are seeing? And so things like optics around tribes. I have my favorite that I've known for 15 years. We're really, really close. We go to lunch every day. That creates a sense of us and everybody else, even if you report to me, don't have that same level of access. And it, you know, you start to question, am I as important? And we're right back to your two questions. Do I matter? And do I belong? People are making meaning out of everything, whether there's meaning to be made there or not. People are meaning making machines. You, your life as a leader is on the jumbotron 24 seven, and you have a megaphone strapped to your mouth that, that amplifies everything you say and do. You cannot scratch. There's no such thing as small talk when you're a leader. You know, everything you say is going to be interpreted through some lens of bias, of past trauma, of bad leadership, of other things that, you know, you are always going to be a character in everybody's story. You may not be the character you mean to be, but people are telling stories about you every night in their homes. Do you know what stories they're telling? And if you don't, you should want to get in on the conversation because they may be making up stories that are not true. Um, And while you can control all of those narratives, you can certainly control many of them. Right. 
So knowing what the stories are, I remember a CEO that I worked with a few years ago saying, you know, it, I, the hardest thing about being CEO was it mattered what shoes I wore that day. You know, did I wear the tasseled loafers or I'd wear the wingtip? Suddenly everybody's interpreting something about my mood, my meetings, my implications, my everything based on the shoes. And getting adjusted to that was a hard journey. I had one leader leave a meeting we were in and walk really fast down the hallway Mm-hmm. Um, and people thought there was a, by the time he returned, there was a, already a, something was wrong. He had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. but, but so we have to just accept the fact that we are symbols in our people's, in the, in the, in the lives of the people we lead, you know, their, their past experiences of authority are all coming into the room. Their past, who parented them is coming into the room. Um, and you have to accept the fact that you are a massive transference object for their stories. Okay. Um, and again, you can't control all those narratives, but you can certainly pay attention to what's, what people are metabolizing. The other thing you, you can ask yourself, and you raised this earlier, is ask yourself, are, how often are people coming into your office to say things that make you uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have somebody coming into your office at least once or twice a week saying things that make you uneasy or uncomfortable, you can just conclude that your leadership sucks because... And if you've concluded that there aren't uncomfortable things to say, now you're dumb. Because if you th- even if you be a team of five people, there, there's enough complexity there where things are not going well. There's going to be sand in the gears at some point. And if they're not telling you, they're telling somebody. Um, and if you're not getting access to that information, it's not random. You need to ask yourself why people are not coming to you to engage you in things, that, even including your own behavior, in things that are difficult to talk about. That is both a provocative statement and a powerful statement, again, at the same time, is that if people are not coming to your office telling you uncomfortable things, things you don't want to hear, don't like to hear, then you're not doing a good job as a leader. And if you think there's nothing there for them to tell you, you're worse than that, a little bit blind as a leader. So, because there's always stuff. I agree. You get three people together and there's something. Guaranteed. There's something. (laughs) In 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's something somewhere. Okay, so what does this mean leaders need to be doing? So you said right thing, right place, right time uh, for the right reason. Um, beyond that, what, what are the things we need to be watching out for as leaders to ensure that those uncomfortable conversations are actually coming into our office as opposed to being the gossip in the bar or at the dinner table? Yeah. Well, for, first of all, ask yourself, do you, do you talk about it? Are there conversations you have with your team about talking about hard things? Um, are you asking, for, do you have a pipeline of open feedback to you, whether it's anonymous or not, about how people experience you? Here's a simple experiment. Um, one of the things we learned in the, in the research was a, about the say, do, get, being who we say we are. Our companies all make promises through mission statements, through purpose statements, through value statements. Um, they're proclamations of what to expect around here. Well, turns out they're not just statements that often get con- con- consumed just cosmetically. That if the actions of the organization, the actions of leaders actually match what those words promise, you are three times more likely to have people be honest. But if those words are cosmetic only, if they're just for external consumption, um, but people are free to do other things besides what those words say, you've now institutionalized duplicity. You've now said to the organization, around here is perfectly okay, to say one thing and do another. Bring those statements into your next team meeting. Your pick one, your value statement, your purpose statement, whatever, and ask your team, how good are we at living this? 
Does this, do these words describe how you, you experience this group, this team, this organization every day? And if not, where can we do better? Mm-hmm. Ask, ask them, if somebody followed our team around with a video camera for a day, could they use that video as a training program for these values? Mm. Or would they see something else? Talk, bring those into the conversation. Um, ask your team, who's are they? Who's the, the cross-functional rival that we, you know, we treat as, uh, you know, the nemesis tribe, the people we don't like, the people who drive us crazy? Um, and ask yourself, is that okay? Because what we learned in the research is when cross-functional rivalries prevail, when the seams of the organization are unstitched, you're six times more likely to have people be dishonest. But if there's cohesion of those seams, if the, if the, if the people with whom you are meant to work uh, have a place to resolve their conflicts and differences, have a ways to work through the value they create, now you're six times more likely to have people be honest. So pick one scene where you know the relationship is strained, where you know there are biases, because guess what? You're, the, you're there, they too. Yeah. Um, and just walk across the organization, walk across the hallway, walk across the organization and say, hey, we know this is struggling. We know this is strained. Our people are, you know, acting like they're in something rivalries. They're watching us and they're taking the cues and it's belaboring our collaboration. How can we do better? Mm-hmm. How can I be a better colleague to you? The, the role modeling of that says to people, relationships matter. It says to them that we're all part of a bigger story and we'd all, it's not about who wins and who loses. Um, those are the practical things. And, and the book is just teeming. I made sure that nobody had an excuse not to know how to put these things in place. So every chapter ends with an entire pile of here are things you can go try to Im- improve the honesty quotient and the trustworthiness of you as a leader and your team. Yeah, I want to. I mean, we all say they're silos, and silos are just part of organizational life, and so on. Okay, I, you know, and I think you have to fight every moment you can as a leader to break those silos down. But one of the things that I've always been fascinated by some of the worst politics I have ever seen comes out of two leaders who are rivals in some way, and us versus them, and very tightly connected teams underneath those two leaders, so that suddenly bridging the gap is seen as disloyalty. That, like, it gets brutal. It can get brutal really quickly, even when no one intends for it to be brutal. And it's sort of the same thing you're describing. How those two leaders treat each other has ripple effects down the organization. And it's, in a setting, it is creating a template people will follow. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Um, where do I want to go from here? Um, so you've said if people, if you want to know that people are telling you the truth, the number one question is, are they telling you uncomfortable information? Tell me some examples about uncomfortable information. And can you give me an example of how you've gotten somebody? Because it's so easy to say, oh, I want to hear the difficult stuff. And the team looks at you and go, I don't know if I believe you do or not. Uh, So give me an example of how somebody has converted from, I wasn't hearing the comfortable information to now people are actually telling me that uncomfortable truth. Well, the first thing they do is they, they, they model vulnerability. They talk about their own weaknesses and shortfalls. They they ask for and they ask for feedback. Um, sometimes you have to start honestly. Sometimes you sort of pass a bunch of index card out and have people write down what they think the undiscussables are. Mm-hmm. Have them collected by somebody else and pull a few out to talk about. 
you know, so you can begin mechanizing that conversation. But certainly you're asking simple questions like, hey, I have one client, she frequently asks after she'll express a strong point of view, okay, now tell me where I'm smoking crack. So you can do simple mechanisms and things to put, and yes, it may, it may be silent for a bit. Let people stay in the silence. Somebody will say something and then be very clear on how you react. If you get the slightest bit defensive or dismissive or justifying or explaining away what they tell you, you will signal to them that in fact, it's not safe for them to tell you things you don't agree with. Um, I had another leader who, when he knew there were going to be biases and points of view in the, in the room, he would tell people, okay, when you come in to present that strategy or that product or that, or that project, you guys over here, you bring in the dueling fact basis. You bring in the counterpoints of view that would contradict this one and we'll have it. So he would force it right in the room rather than having it take place out in the hallway where he knew it would otherwise go. Okay. All right. But in that context, though, how do you keep from, from having the metaphorical equivalent of fistfights in the room so that you damage the relationship so much that people can't collaborate with each other? Well, there's certainly ground rules, right? So how do you depersonalize feedback? How do you give people the skill? Because people do have to have skill for this. It's not like you just go in and say anything you want. So yeah. you have to make sure that there's some um, skill, some, um, some language to use and give people some, some practice reps, right? Go have, take them yeah. to the conflict, the conflict gym to work out a little bit. Um, and when people cross a line and say something that's dismissive or defensive, defensive gigging, apologize, you know, call the question and say, Hey, that overstepped there. Okay. Let's back it up and have them apologize. Okay. Um, it, it is a messy thing to practice, but, but the teams conflict is the raw material of innovation without those sparks. You're just, you just sort of wallowing in the same points of view and biases and just recycling them. So if you don't teach your team to, um, to, to bring out differences with each other and to own their discourse and to find even better solutions as a result, what's the point of even meeting? You're just wasting your time. Yeah. Well, some of us would argue, let's, let's stop meeting. Just make the pronouncement because you're going to do that at any rate. So why are we bothering? But Don't there we've got the say-do gap. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, I do believe it is possible to practice this conflict and to set some ground rules that make it possible for people to say what they want to say and to hear it. I think all of those are conceivable to do here and some great ideas in the book. Ron, this is a perfect place to take a break. And then when I come back, I want to talk about the particulars that you discovered of among the best. What is it that the best are doing that's really unique? So my guest today, Ron Carucci, the book that we're talking about is To Be Honest, Lead with Power, Truth, Justice, and Purpose. I think if I look back on this particular segment, the thing I like the most about what you said is one question, where are the privileges that others don't enjoy and how do I correct that justice? And I also love this notion of where's the gap between our values and what we're doing. Could somebody follow us around, videotape us for a week, and use us as a model to teach living these values? That's an interesting test. We'll be right back. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement, and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Ron Carucci. The book we're talking about is To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. Now, it may strike you as it did me on first looking at this, that truth, justice, and purpose seem interesting to go together when we're talking about how do you make sure that people in your organization are telling you the truth. But Ron's research and interviews are showing that it's no longer just the say the right thing. It's about saying the right thing, doing the right thing, and for the right reason, that this notion of meaning and righting wrongs have to be joined together for people to see you as a leader as trustworthy. And I think one of the acid tests in this one is, um, are people telling you uncomfortable things? If they're not They're avoiding telling you something you should know because guarantee there's something in there that you do need to know. And as Ron says, they're telling somebody, either in the bar with peers or with a competitor or at home with family, they're telling somebody about the things that are going wrong. Question is, are they telling you? We've also talked about some of the things you do as a leader to make sure that people hear it. So some behaviors on your part, like impatience and cynicism or even arrogance can shut people down. And... Being having a gap between what the values say and advertise and what you actually do day in and day out and making that gap clean. All right. What I want to do from now, Ron, is to turn to the positive. You talked to some amazing leaders, some that you would hold up as incredibly exemplary leaders who managed to get the truth told to them and to lead with justice and truth and purpose. So, pick a story or tell me the highlights or tell me what you learned. What is it that the best to do? 
So it's um, the, the gosh, there were so many really inspiring stories uh, that, I, that I had the privilege of curating. Um, let me start with one of my favorites, which was Microsoft. Um, you know, when Satya Nadella took the helm there, he had inherited a quite a divided, um, competitive uh, uh, culture uh, of people who he referred to as know-it-alls. Um, because, you know, Bill and Steve had pre- previously led the culture to be very competitive. They wanted to, they, want, they, they believed that the, the best ideas would prevail if you had made people compete with each other. But that had outlived its usefulness because what they needed people to, to be able to do was collaborate. And Satya began his work with his leadership team by asking them, you know, in a very comfortable setting, around, sitting around couches rather than around a table on one of their early offsites, let's flip the script and say that Microsoft now works for you. How is Microsoft going to be a platform for you to live out your purpose? Because he knew that if he wanted to activate the sense of deep meaning and purpose in 140,000 employees, it was going to have to start with them. Um, and that's how he began the culture change there. He, he said, we're going to become a culture of, from, from being know-it-alls to learn-it-alls and to, uh, to really introduce the notion of a growth mindset of being open to learning and growing. Kathleen Hogan, who is his you know, sort of um, chief people officer and architect of the culture, I spent uh, a bunch of time with her interviewing her to understand what were some of the practical things they did. Um, and they changed their leadership model to care, coach, and model. Um, as the three pillars of what they wanted to see from leaders. They changed their accountability systems to start recording, to start rewarding people who fell short of a goal but got us closer rather than, you know, calling it a failure to say, well, what did we learn from that? I'm still holding people accountable for their commitments and making sure that the performance bar didn't lessen, but making sure people didn't have to show up in meetings with memorized answers and 100 pages of slides, that they could show up with questions, they could commit to going and learning. So they dramatically did things in the organization that allowed people to flourish in very new ways. They started recruiting from more than just the top 10 schools, but they now recruit from hundreds of schools all over the world. Um, And in the the seven years since Satya started there, the culture has changed dramatically. And they would all say, Kathleen would still say, we have to earn it every day. We still have a ways to go. We're still learning and growing. But my goodness, if you can take that much of a behemoth-sized company that whose culture was pretty entrenched in a certain way and change it. Um, it shows you the power of what one leader can do. Yes. He happens to be the CEO, but all of us can, can, if we're intentional, shape an environment that's different than the one we're in. Right. So did he feel that there was a burning platform? Like Microsoft was doing really well when he and they took over the helm, you know, the profits were good. So they, yeah, They weren't. The stock, the stock had been flat for a very long time. They hadn't grown. They were losing competitive ground to Amazon in their, in the cloud space. Um, their devices were okay. So actually the company hadn't grown in a while and people were demoralized over that because they had joined a very high growth company. And he believed that they had to go back to the soul of Microsoft, back to the sense of productivity and empowerment and enabling others to perform with what they created, both software and hardware. So um, I don't know that it was the, they felt like they were on the brink, but they certainly felt stalled. Um, you know, by contrast, you know, when Uber Julie took over Best Buy, they were on the brink. Yeah. They were uh, about to face bankruptcy and online retailers were certainly taking away all kinds of market share from them. And Uber, to his amazing credit, this, rather than doing all the classic playbook of cutting costs, closing stores and, you know, bringing it back from the brink, he did just the opposite. Mm-hmm. He went and listened to people. He recognized that people, people in, the, in the stores working with customers were not empowered. They were flat. And so 
he too began a series of workshops to unleash what he calls human magic to ask those employees if we're best by when are we at our best and listening to people's stories, sometimes heartbreaking and sometimes heartwarming stories about their own stories. So they felt safe to be themselves. He said, look, when you're on the floor, don't go for people's wallets, treat them as if they're your grandmother, um, somebody who has a problem they need to be solved. Be helpful. You know, their purpose became to, um, um, to enable people to live enriched lives through technology. Um, he said, we'll sell people a TV if they want one, but we want people to come here and feel like they're, they're getting their lives enriched. And so through over this over years of work to both stabilize the profitability of the company and then have it grow, you know, the stock price went from about $11 to just near $100 in the, in the eight years he was CEO. Um, but, but more than anything else, he unleashed the best in people. He unleashed a sense of commitment and purpose of people to, to do their best work uh, while in their employ. Um, and it's because his heart... Uh, and, and his new book, The Heart of Business, tells the story. But I also, he's one of the episodes in my TV series, and he's also a major story in the book. Um, you can you sense his goodness. He completely overhauled how they did accountability. He couldn't stay. He got these forms where he had to check off boxes and put numbers in boxes. He said, this is ridiculous. What are we doing this for? This, nobody's being helped by this. Um, so I just simply started by saying to people, how do you think you did last year? And what would you do differently? And how can I be helpful? Uh, you know, I don't need to be filling out forms and putting numbers in boxes for people. That just seemed, he said, it just seems silly to me. And so he did really practice. One of the first things he discovered on, as he did a, 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 a very intensive tour of many, many, many other stores, he heard from store managers saying, I have 50 KPIs I'm accountable for. I can't, I can't keep up with them all. And he was flabbergasted. Um, he dramatically simplified. He said, we have two problems, growth and profitability. That's it. We're going to work on two problems. He said, how hard could that be? If we had five, maybe, but two we could handle. And if you asked anybody in that era what those two problems were, everybody would have told you what they were working on. Yeah. You raise an interesting point, something I don't think organizations think nearly enough about. And that's, and I don't want to get down the track of performance management systems, but some of the dishonesty starts with how we run our performance evaluations at year end. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, okay, I have to give you a ranking, but I only have to have so many people in this organization who can be above a particular level X, Y, and Z. And so therefore you can't be, I mean, that just is breeding dishonesty, isn't it? Or do you see that differently? Oh my gosh. No, no. It's one of the biggest things we learned in our research was the detriment of today's system. Our performance management systems today were created for repetitive work. They're accredited to evaluate how many t-shirts did you print? How many claims did you close? How many files did you open? How many accounts did you open? Um, but that's not today's work. Today's work is, um, and today's remits are as personal as the people remitting them. It's my analysis, my creativity, my ideas, my um, challenging thought, my provocative perspective. Um, so when you evaluate my contribution, you are evaluating the contributor. Mm -hmm. We used to try and separate those things. And, and, and what we try to do with our systems today is we try to scale sameness as if it was fairness. Today, sameness is the very thing that makes it unfair because it, it, it completely disacknowledges the uniqueness of who I am. Um, we also learned, you know, I had one client I was working with who was a major successor for a big job in a company. I was coaching him and we had scheduled the coaching call intentionally right after his performance review of the year to make sure things were still on track as we assumed they were. Mm -hmm. And as soon as it came on screen, Wanda, I, I could see the veins in his neck bulging, you know, and he starts, she gave me a three. 
I'm always a four. In my last company, I was a five. I'm always a top rating. But now HR says there's a quota. So I got a three. Who the hell got the four? I mean, it was, it was out of control, Wanda. Like, it was irrational. And it went on. And I said, could you just send me the forms? I want to I read them. And while he's venting and I'm trying to sort of back him off the ledge, I'm reading what she wrote. And it was actually quite balanced and quite affirmative and quite accurate. But the number, the number set him off. And turns out it, he is not unique. Right. Our brains, our amygdalas are wired against categorical thinking. We respond to categorical thinking as a threat and our amygdalas get hijacked. And we see it as uh, us being invisible, us being eclipsed, us being shrunk. Not mattering. Uh, so he was responding the way his brain is wired to respond. And yet how many companies have these artificial Categories, these incredibly false, precise, falsely precise places where we put people in boxes and numbers and label them. To, I mean, and the research is very clear on this, both ours and the world's, to no value. There is no decision that gets better supported. There's no talent management process that gets improved by categorical thinking. And you're traumatizing people. Right. Right. So we have multiple ways today, which is why our accountability systems are a cause of dishonesty. Because if I feel like I'm being treated unjustly or misjudged, I'm going to embellish my accomplishments and I'm going to hide my mistakes. Right. And if that's the case, what we learned is now you're four times more likely to have people be dishonest. But if those systems begin with dignity and begin with justice, meaning I can be successful here, now you're four times more likely to have people be honest and tell you the truth. Right. So they matter dramatically here. And, and you know, many companies 10, 10 years ago started just saying, okay, this is useless. Let's just do away with them. Well, the problem was you didn't replace it with anything. People still need feedback. People are wired and want to be held accountable. They want to stretch and grow. They want to know where they can improve. And that starts with a, at its foundation with an intimate and trusting relationship between a leader and those she leads. And that's the, the, that is the ultimate mechanism by which you deliver accountability and justice and dignity. Um, the documentation of all of it is, is what it is. So whether you do it monthly or quarterly or annually is less relevant. It's, is it qualitatively a, a meaningful experience? And when I walk out of that meeting, do I feel like my contribution has been honored? Even the parts I'm not doing well, do I feel like I, I have been honored in how I've been taught and told to grow? Okay. Um, and when that's not the case, you are, you are inserting risk into your organization. You make a powerful argument there. Um, one, I hope everybody will reevaluate as we're going into this period of time where we're doing a lot of these performance conversations at this moment in time. So, Ron, your two examples, Microsoft and Best Buy, had CEOs starting with the soul of the company. Mm-hmm. The purpose. What are we here to stand for? What are we trying to accomplish? What's our core objective measures? Are there? Is it always start with purpose, or does it start with some other things? The oh, best? I, 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 you know, where, where you? I mean, like a surgeon, like a surgeon says, where are you going to cut in? Mm-hmm. I mean, at some point, if you're going to transform something, certainly uh, a shared purpose, a shared sense of meaning, is a great place to begin. If that if that isn't already present in your culture, it may be present, or maybe it may be languishing, but it may be there, and you can certainly stoke the fires there. But I had leaders begin with many different places, depending on what opportunities were served up to them or what, what precipice they felt themselves at the edge of. Uh, but I, but the point is is diagnose, assess. Right. We, we there were four major findings of areas you can cut in if you want to improve trustworthiness. 
there's no order of battle. Pick the place where you have the lowest hanging fruit and invite your organization to begin to think about itself differently and think about you differently. Okay. And so what are those four? We've talked about purpose and meaning. What are the other three? So it was, you know, clarity, identity, be who you say you are, justice and dignity and accountability, transparency and decision-making. And the other one we talked about was cross-functional collaboration or, or border wars. Okay. Um, okay. So, there, you know, the, the, I think you made the point earlier, Wanda, that these are all things that are hiding in plain sight. We just, we just refer to them as routine parts of organizational life or regular nuisances or just things you have to put up with. Well, it turns out they're much more than that. They're actually places where the ethical fungus is growing in the Petri dish. Um, and, you know, the, the stories like Theranos and Wells Fargo and those begin way, way earlier, years even, before they even hit the world. And so if you don't know where the cracks are in your Petri dish, where the fungus is growing, go find it and don't conclude it. Don't be in denial and conclude that it's not, it's not there. there. Right. All right. So um, I can't tell you how many leaders I see who say transparency, 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 and who are not aware of the lack of transparency felt <laughs> in the organization. Okay. So give me an example of what transparent decision-making really looks like. So uh, most people assume that it means disclosure. Mm -hmm. It actually, it's not people don't want more information that what they want is inclusion. Ah. Right. It's, it's the two way participation. So if I walk into a room uh, commonly called a meeting Mm -hmm. and I believe what's happening around that table is an honest exchange of ideas. The information being presented is, is well vetted and it's balanced the person presenting the information is not there with a, a very clear agenda and sending other points of view to the side or leaving them out. And I believe that my voice is welcome. I believe that if I'm to offer, I were to offer a different point of view, um, it would be welcomed. Now you, you're three and a half times, well, if I have people be honest and me be honest. But if I walk into that room and I think it's orchestrated theater and nothing more than performance art, and the decision is to your point earlier has already been made. The, the data being presented is s- scrubbed and bent. Um, and the last thing I think you want to hear is a point of view that that, that counters the prevailing point of view in the room. <coughs> now I have to go outside the room to get the truth, you know, or get it in the hallway, or hope that I'm in the the back channel c- communications. Now you're three and a half times more than having to be dishonest because I can't get the truth in the room. I had one client with um, who, um, in a coaching session with me, I was actually working with his whole organization, and he and he disclosed that things were pretty bad. That the, the um, they were facing some sudden, unexpected, severe headwinds, and that there would have to be some severe cost cutting. And he was really worried about what was going to happen. <clears throat> and I asked him, "Well, when, when when were your early signals of this? When did you start to see it coming?" He said, "About two months ago." I said, wow, how did your team respond? He looked perplexed. He said, well, I mean, I didn't tell him how bad it was. I said, why? He said, well, I don't want to panic them. And, my, and, and then the, the best ones will quit and leave. I said, one of your values is actually transparency here. That's what you say you value as a company. He said, well, yes, but that doesn't mean telling them everything, does it? I said, no, there's appropriate times for, for discretion. I said, this isn't one of them. The, 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 the telling people what they want to hear in good news and leaving out the bad news is infantilizing. It's not protecting them from anything. 
I said, you are not in the best position to make the decisions about what costs are going to be cut. You, you are the least qualified person to make that choice. Why don't you engage them, be honest with them, and I'll bet you they'll do a much better job at making the hard choices that have to get made than you would. Um, that's what transparency means, uh, including them in the hard news. And he took the risk and did it. And of course, the team rose to the occasion. They were a little bit upset that they, he waited so long to tell them. I understand. I prepared him for that backlash. But they got after it and cut way harder cost structures than he would have. But nobody had to lose a job. Okay. So, you know, we think that um, in some very parochial, parental or patriarchal way, we're protecting people from bad news. We're just self-soothing. That's our own comfort we're indulging. People are big boys and girls. They can handle bad news. What they can't handle is knowing that you knew for a long time and didn't tell them and now have to deliver a bad bad message to them that um, they could have helped augment or prevent. Or help figure out the best solution forward. The one I see that is so disastrous on this one is you told me how to manage those costs not let me show you how I could manage those costs. And I might've even managed them better than that if you gave me the freedom. I can't tell you how many times I've seen oh my gosh. And why do leaders think that because they have the spreadsheet that they're the, they're the ones qualified to make the red lines? You're the least qualified by virtue of the fact that you have that spreadsheet and aren't executing and managing those monies. That, that should tell you, that alone should tell you you're not qualified. Um, yes, it, it is an act of empowerment and a relinquishing of well, actually, it's relinquishing control you really never had anyway, but relinquishing your own symbolism of control to those who are more qualified. Right. Ultimately, you're still the decision maker. So they can bring your recommendations and ideas without making them think that all their ideas get heard. People can hear no. They can hear, I don't, thank you for your input, I'm not going to take it. What they can't hear is, I don't, even, I don't even want to hear your input. Right. Or somehow I know better because I've got the title. Right. Therefore, I'm supposed to know more and I'm supposed to have the answers. And I have the spreadsheet. I have the data. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's the thing that makes you unqualified to make the decision. <laughs> that is an interesting one. If you have all the information, then you have the wrong. You're not qualified to make the decision. I love that as an analogy. All right, Ron, I can't resist. One minute. What takes you out of your comfort zone? Oh, my gosh. Um there are so many things, Wanda. Um, promoting a book. <laughs> I'll tell you what, this has this has made this last year has been insufferable. It is a, it is a, it, it, books are by definition an existential crisis. Um, and I thought after nine, I was kind of over that. No, it actually gets worse. Um, and so that 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 season between conception and birth, and then post birth, is maddening. And it, it, it is an absolute assault on your identity. It's an absolute assault on your own sense of meaning. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, an emotional cavern. And um, it, yeah, I hate it. I, <laughs> I, I don't know that anybody ever gets used to it, but I hate it. <laughs> I love the honesty and candor on that. And I love how easy it is then for somebody to come back with that kind of honesty and say, yeah, let me tell you about what my worst is. All right, Ron, always fabulous to have you on the show. Fascinating discussions, a lot of really insightful information in this one. If you want your team to be honest, they have to tell you the uncomfortable news. If they're not telling the uncomfortable news, they're telling it somewhere. 
How do you act in a way that's going to make it possible for them to tell you the truth? I think that is the most fascinating question of the week. For here we go. Ron Carucci, co-founder and manager, managing partner of Navalent, the book, To Be Honestly, with Power, Truth, Justice, and Purpose. If you like this episode, please rate us on your favorite podcast provider. If you'd like to know more about how to apply these concepts, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com and join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.